There are four words that you will never hear a pastor say to the congregation. Four words. These are the words. I, 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 I can't say them. Butler, would you come here, please? Can you just read these words to the congregation? I, I can't say them. Read it loud. I can't say you. <laughs> say it. I don't need you. Say it again. I don't need you. Thank you. Sit down. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There are four more words. Come on. Re- re- read those two, Butler. You can go home. <laughs> say it again. Now, now read all eight together. Yes. I don't need you. You can go home. Thank you, Butler. You can sit down now. You're never going to hear a pastor say those words. Thank you, Butler. Just give me my hand. Listen, we take the, that, that shepherding role seriously, and every shepherd has that staff in his hand. And on the end of that staff is that hook. And what do pastors do with that hook? Oh, come here. Put it right around your neck. We always feel like we need more people, more people, more people. There are never enough people to do the things that we need to do. So I think this morning, being in Deuteronomy chapter 20 is God's sense of humor, for me at least. Because you've heard we're right in the midst of putting together these new programs for Christian education and community groups. There's a flurry of activity around this place. We're looking for volunteers to do this and to do that and to do the other thing. And so it's if God is saying, I'm going to take this truth from Deuteronomy chapter 20 and plop it right down in the middle of your reality here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and what are you going to do with it? Because that's always the way is that God drops his truth right in our lives, and it's up to us to decide what we're going to do with that truth. The truth this morning is that God is more interested in who we are than what we have. God is much more interested in our hearts than what we have in our hands. And so you and I have to determine what it is that is in our heart. And what are those things in our lives to which you and I are wholeheartedly devoted and if those things aren't what God wants of us, then we need to reorient our lives in that direction. And that's what I hope will happen this morning as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 20. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn in the Old Testament to that book and chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And when you found your place in Deuteronomy chapter 20, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we can hear read together and honor the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 20, Moses is speaking to the people gathered on the plains of Moab. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, hear, O Israel, Today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The officer shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. 
Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officer shall add, Is any man faint, afraid, or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, as always, for your word. Always relevant to our lives. An ancient word that's always relevant to our lives. Always speaks to us where we are. Your word always recognizes our hearts. Because, Lord, we are we're the same sinful people that have always been. And so we pray now that you would take this truth, this timeless truth. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would uh, apply it to our hearts. So that we are changed and become more the people that you have called us to be. And so that we as individuals and as a church do more the things that you've called us to do. We commit ourselves now to your word and to the authority of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week we were in the same passage and we focused on the first four verses. And we saw in those verses that God is instructing his people in how to go about going to war. Because war is going to be a reality for the nation of Israel. Very shortly, they're going to strike camp, cross the Jordan River, and begin their conquest of the promised land. Because God has determined that that promised land that belongs to him is no longer going to be desecrated and distorted and perverted by the people who live there. And no longer from that land will those perversions emanate into the rest of the world. God has chosen instead to plant his people in that land. People who know him and love him and seek to live in obedience to his word. Through those people living in that land, God is going to cause it to to flourish. And so there'll be people of battle and conquest as they take that land over. Once the land is theirs, once they have possession of it, as we saw last week, war will continue to be a reality for their lives. Because in their culture, the ancient kings, every season, seasonally, they went out to war. Because those kings were seeking to possess more land for the glory of their gods. And so the Israelites will always have to fight to protect the land. They will have to fight to protect the people living in it. Because from this land and through these people will come Jesus. From this land, Bethlehem, through these people will come Jesus. So humanly speaking, these stakes are enormous, aren't they? For for carrying out the plan of God. Because it's God's choice to use humans, to use people to advance his kingdom here on earth. And so it's vitally important for the people of Israel and for you and for me this morning to know how to fight those battles, how to win those battles that will, in fact, advance the kingdom of God. And that's what we're after this morning, this complete circuit, fighting the battle, winning the battle, fighting the battle, winning the battle. That's what we are after, to advance the kingdom of God. We don't aspire to fight and lose. Nobody aspires to fight and lose. 
Neither do we aspire to win the battle, but win it in a way that is displeasing or dishonoring to the Lord and to his name. We want to fight in God's way so that we experience God's victory. Last week, what do we see? Faith is required if the battle is to be won. And so before the nation of Israel goes into battle, the priest stands before them and addresses them. And the priest is standing there so that he can reorient the thinking of the army, so that he can adjust their vision. He says to them, you're going to look out and your eyes are going to deceive you. You're going to see horses. You're going to see chariots. You're going to see armies that are far greater than yours. And your heart is going to fear and your heart is going to tell your mind and your mind is going to tell your feet, you better flee. You better run. You cannot win. But the priest stands there to tell them, no, what you see has deceived you. You can win because the Lord fights with you. The Lord fights for you. You and I should start every morning of our lives with that reorientation. When we wake up, and we shake the fog of sleep away and we remember, we remember where we are and what day, what day, oh, what, do I have to get up? Remember who, who we are, where we are. What's the first thing we do then? We reorient our mind with this thought. We remember who God is. He is a God who is with us. We remember who we are. We are God's sons and daughters loved by our heavenly father. And we remember what he has called us to do each day and every day which is to seek to advance his kingdom in the world and the place in which he has placed us. And when we finish that reorientation, then you and I should reach for our spiritual glasses so that we have eyes of faith to see. I've been wearing glasses since I was two years old. 27 years I've been wearing glasses. (laughs) Excuse me? What's funny about that? Anyway, more than 27 years, I've been wearing glasses. And instinctually, the first thing I do every single morning of my life since I was two years old before my feet ever hit the ground, I reach for my glasses. I put them on because I cannot see without them. In that same way, that's how instinctual we should be to put on these glasses of faith with a prescription that's strong enough To see as the servant of Elisha saw. When the enemies came against Elisha, the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And what did he see? He saw that the hill around Elisha was filled with horses and with chariots of fire. Elisha was safe because the Lord was fighting for him. All that is just review of what we saw last week. This morning, I want us to focus on verses 5 through 9. So now the priest sits down. He's done his reorientation, and now it is the officers who are called to stand and address the troops. What is it that these officers have to add to the faith that the priest called for so that we might fight and win the battle? Well, in verses 5 through 7, if you look there, the officers give three acceptable exemptions from serving in the army. If you've built a new house, If you've planted a a new vineyard or you're at the point of having a new wife, you are told 
You don't have to fight. You can go home. What? (laughs) This is unheard of. Because we know that strength is in numbers. And since we believe the, the bigger the army, the more likely the victory, then our natural inclination is to seek more able bodied people. So, unless you have flat feet or unless you have some other extenuating medical problem, you are going to have to fight. But that's not the case with the Lord. The Lord doesn't need able bodied men, He needs able hearted and able minded men. That's what the Lord is after. And that's the point of each of these exceptions. Where is your heart? Where's your heart? In each of these scenarios, the heart of the soldier is divided. And their thoughts might be something like this. I wish I didn't have to go off to war right now. I just built this new house. I just planted this vineyard. I just married this beautiful woman. What rotten timing. I'm sure you remember a Christmas present or birthday present you received when you were a kid. One that you had wanted a long time and you opened it and there is just the thing that you had been wanting and waiting for. And if that gift, that toy were small enough, you probably put it in bed with you that night because you just loved it that much. And if it was too big, you know, you you didn't bring it to bed, but you tore yourself away from it at bedtime and first thing in the morning you went straight to that toy. For me, it was a green bike with orange tires and a steering wheel instead of handlebars because I was a car freak and everything had to be about a car. And so I I loved it. Every day, all day long, I rode that bike. And when school started a couple of weeks later, the first thing I did when I got off the school bus was to jump on that green bike with the orange wheels and the steering wheel. And I, I, I rode all afternoon. So for a period in my life, everything else was a distraction from what I really wanted, and that was to to ride my bike. And that's the reality for every one of us here. Children, adults, it doesn't matter. Our hearts fixate on something. And so what I love about these verses is how clearly they show us the love and the compassion of our Heavenly Father. How well He knows us. You know, sometimes we picture God as those harsh taskmasters that were over the people of Israel when they were slaves, always drove them, make bricks, make bricks. They got to the point they wouldn't even give them the materials they needed to make bricks, but they still demanded, make bricks, make bricks. And they beat them if they didn't do what they were required to do. God is not a harsh taskmaster. God knows our frames. And God is not afraid to say the words, I don't need you. You can go home. Psalm 103, 13 says that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. The New Living Translation translation reads, for he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are dust. See, God knows that all of us are finite people. That doesn't surprise him that we are finite. He knows that we don't always 
not even often have an infinite perspective or an eternal perspective. But look, God is patient. God is patient with us while he is developing in us this infinite, eternal kingdom perspective. The ultimate for all of us, it's what the choir sang this morning. Jesus, all for Jesus. All I am, all I have, all I ever hope to be. All my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender them into your hands. All for Jesus. Now that's the goal. That's the goal. That's the standard for every single one of us who is a believer in Christ. But now it's up to us, to you and to me, to determine how close we are to reaching that goal in our lives. And we have to determine if we are even moving in that direction in our lives. And we have to decide whether we're willing to kneel down beside King David to join him in prayer as he prays in Psalm 86, teach me your way, Lord that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart. Give me an undivided heart. The English Standard Version reads, give me a united heart. A heart that gathers up all those strands that, that wander here and there. And long after all these different things, we gather them all up right here toward one goal and one purpose. Christ and the gospel of his kingdom. But our hearts are not always united. Our hearts are not always undivided. And that's what's demonstrated here in these verses. Emotionally speaking, God doesn't want these soldiers on the battlefield whose hearts are not in the fight. The man who's labored long to build that house and hasn't had an opportunity to to live in it, he longs to be at home. And so the Lord is compassionate. God wants this man to be where his heart is in establishing that new home, so send that man home. Verse 6, the soldier there, he's planted that vineyard. It's new. It takes a five-year process. For the first three years, you're not allowed to take the fruit of the vine. The fourth year, All the fruit from the vine belongs to the Lord. It's not until the fifth year that you're able to harvest and enjoy the fruit of that vine for yourself. This man has labored long and hard. His heart is to be there with his new vineyard. And so the Lord wants the man to be where his heart is. And so he says, send that man home. The last scenario needs no explanation. A man is engaged. Where is his heart? With that girl that he loves. Send that man home. Let him marry the love of his life. Over in chapter 24 in Deuteronomy, it says that when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty for one whole year. He's to be free to enjoy his wife and establish his home. See, the Lord is compassionate with some of the things that divide our hearts and take our attention. He's not a slave driver or harsh taskmaster. He's compassionate with his people. He understands our hearts and our cares and our emotions. But God also also sees beyond your heart and my heart. 
and our needs and our emotions and what we love. He sees beyond the war that is at hand. And in the moment, the very moment when the enemy is at the gate, the war may seem all-consuming to the people of Israel. It's everything to them. But God sees beyond the war to the plan that he is working out, his plan to bless the world through the people living in this land. And so Romans 8, 28 becomes a reflection of what we see here in this passage this morning. For we know that God works all things together for good for those who know him, who love him, and are called according to his purpose. He works all things together for good. Some go to war by God's command. Some stay home by God's command. Some hearts are divided. Other hearts are united before the Lord. And God in his sovereignty somehow, somehow weaves all those strands together to accomplish and fulfill his plan. Because why fight a battle? Why go off to war and fight only to return to a home that's not a home, to a decimated family, to a financially ruined family, to widows and orphans and bankruptcy because no one was allowed to go home. In order to fulfill his plan, God sends some to war and some home to establish strong, healthy families. Did you know that strong, healthy families are at the heart of God's plan for establishing his kingdom here on earth. Strong, healthy families are at the heart of God's plan for establishing his kingdom here on earth. See, too often, you and I believe that kingdom building, advancing the kingdom of God is more spectacular or more grandiose than it truly is. Surely just being a family that loves one another and loves the Lord, that doesn't score very high on the Richter scale for what really shakes up the world, what really quakes the world for the kingdom. Being diligent, working in the vineyard, working your head, that that doesn't score very high on that spiritual Richter scale. But now people who are in full-time ministry, wow. People who are working on the College of Charleston, sharing the gospel with all those crazy colleges, wow. They're an eight, they're a nine, they're a 10 on the Richter scale. The missionary went to Africa, oh my goodness, Africa, that's a 10 plus on the Richter scale. Or those people that teach Bible studies, they're just always leading people and teaching people about it. Those people are, are the people that are really making a difference in the kingdom of God. And indeed, those people may be, and we are thankful for them, aren't we? We're thankful for the missionaries. We're thankful for the campus workers, all those people. Some people think about what they used to be involved in. I remember when I was able to fill in the blank. But you know, then I got married. I didn't have as much time. You know how that goes. And then, well, you know, we decided to buy a house and I had even less time. And then, well, you know, we had all these kids. And I, I, I just used to do those things, but I, I can't do anything now that advances the kingdom of God. I'm just stuck at home with all these brat children. What would God say to that thought process? I think God would say to that thought process, 
that there are many varied facets to building his kingdom. Many varied facets facets to building his kingdom. He places some on the front lines. He tells others, go home. I'm using all of them to build my kingdom. He tells some to go to the college campus. He tells others to go to Africa. You stay home. You build your home. You make it strong. You love one another. You care for one another. You study together. You worship together. And when you do that as a family, I'm going to have a little mini city of refuge right here in your neighborhood. Because let me tell you, a family that loves each other and loves Jesus and loves their neighbors, that family is extending the kingdom of God on earth. That is ministry. It is outreach. Didn't the kingdom just advance into your own home and change it? And won't the kingdom advance from your home back out again into the world? Anybody who's here this morning, if you're married and you have children, you can attest to the fact that it can be a battle. And you would agree that sometimes you say, Lord, send me into a real battle. That would be a welcome relief. But you and I have to fight the battles that we are called to fight. We have to fight those battles to have strong families. We have to fight against what would attempt to weaken our families. Even those innocuous seeming things like cell phones and video games and Netflix invading our families. Those of you who are single, there are a lot of you here. I'm not going to look down because you'll think I'm looking at you all. So I'll look away. You know, you've got more time to be involved in what we think of as kingdom building activities. You, you have time for that. And God bless you. But God doesn't just need your activity either. He needs your heart as well. And he needs your commitment as well. How are you living the single life? Upright? Godly? What kind of home are you building for yourself as you wait for the day if it comes when you will have a spouse? See, you're building the kingdom just by the way you live your single life. So don't let the kingdom building activities distract you from a heart that is wholly committed to Christ and the life to which he calls you. Married, single, adult, children. All all this that I've described is what we would probably just call the the, the normal life. It's just the, the normal life. But what point is there? What point is there to war if the normal life that we're living and the normal rhythms cease to be a reality? If you win the war against spears and swords and horses and chariots and return home and there's no family, what have you won? God's chosen people are not to be characterized by broken homes and broken lives and economic ruin because God has promised the opposite to those who love him and follow him. In other words, the continuation of the normal life 
the normal life. That is the advancement of the kingdom of God. And our battle is to do all that we can do to protect it. Please note this as well in these verses. Particularly verses 5 through 9. There is no condemnation. There's no condemnation in these verses. The officer doesn't get up in the face of that soldier. What do you mean? You just built a house. I don't give a rip about your house. What do you mean you want to get married? I don't give a rip that you want to get married. No, you're going to fight. You're going to fight. Now get your mind in the battle. No. What's the officer say? Go home. Go home. Enjoy your home. Enjoy your vineyard. Enjoy your wife. God is preserving that privilege for you and not someone else who may take your place should you die in the battle. Now, why do you think there's no judgment? Why do you think there's no condemnation on God's part for these soldiers who have divided hearts? Well, it's because God is not desperate. Did you realize that? God is not desperate. I am desperate. You are like, oh, he is so desperate. We better help that poor guy out. Old guy out. God is not desperate. So it doesn't matter to him how big Israel's army is. It doesn't matter to him how big the enemy army is. It's coming against them. He doesn't care. So here on the plains of Moab, all these words that Moses is speaking to people, they are just theoretical right now. They haven't had to put them into practice. They haven't had to to defend their nation. But a day is coming when God is going to illustrate this truth live and in color in the person of Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon, don't you? He was a judge over Israel. And during his life, the Midianites oppressed the people of Israel so badly that they had to flee to the mountains. They had to hide in caves and fortresses. Because so cruel was the oppression of the Midianites. Scripture describes them like like a swarm of locusts that came and took over the land of Israel. Scripture says that they were so numerous it was impossible to count them. So Gideon raised 32,000 men to be part of the army that was going to fight against the Midianites. This is in Judges chapter 2. So here Gideon has raised this army and what does the Lord say to Gideon? Gideon, you have too many men. Can you imagine? Too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back. So 22 thousand men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men, too many. Take them down to the water and I will sift them there for you. And if I say this one shall go, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon takes the men down to the water and he gives them the test to see which one will, uh, Scoop up the water with their hand and drink it, and those that, that uh, uh, lap it up like a dog. After that process is all over, only 300 men are left. And God says, with the 300 men, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. 
And that's what God did. He defeated that immense army with 300 men. God is not desperate. He does not depend on the strength of armies. He didn't need 32,000. God doesn't want Israel to depend on the strength of armies either. Or they would boast in their own strength. We did this. Instead of saying, no, Lord, you did this. God is not seeking desperation. That's not what we're called to. God is looking for wholehearted commitment to the battle and to faith. And that's the message that the nation of Israel needed to hear. And that's the message you and I need to hear this morning. God isn't desperate. I don't need you. You can go home. The message for Israel and for us this morning is that for God, what's important is not quantity, it's quality. The quality of a, of a heart that's fully committed to him. A heart that the, at the end of the day that woke up to that reorientation says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He's not desperate for anything that we have. What the Lord seeks is our wholehearted commitment. King Solomon dedicated the temple. And after it was dedicated, this was his benediction on the people. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Ephesians 6, 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were not serving the Lord, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know the Lord will reward each for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. So whatever it is God has placed before you right now, Wherever your battlefield is right now, the battlefield or the home front, you and I have to know that he has placed us there on purpose. And we need to know that neither spot is a a place of ease. All of those places are places of battle. So therefore, whatever he has called you to do, Even if you believe it to be a a number one on the spiritual Richter scale, do it with all your heart and stop condemning yourself for what you're not doing because God is working all things together for good. God knows how we are made. God knows we are weak. And so that's why God says in Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He knows we are weak. He knows we need Jesus. And so he sent Jesus to us. And for those of us who are in Christ, who have placed our faith in him for salvation, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for what we are not doing. There's no condemnation when our hearts are more divided than they should be. There is for us, however, Christ. 
And it's on him that we must fix our gaze. He is our focal point. He's the focal point for God as well. Because God looks through Jesus to see us. And when he looks, he sees that Jesus has covered all of our sin. We look at Jesus and we see the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We don't see a God who's desperate, not desperate for what we have. He doesn't need it. What God wants this morning from all of us are our hearts focused and committed to Christ. More and more, Every day, gathering those divergent longings that cause our hearts to to wander and realizing that they're only going to find their fulfillment when we give our hearts completely to Christ. And then when that's who we are, when that's who we are, imagine what God can do through us to advance his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how we, how we love your word. Not my word, but your word, Lord, and the, the truth of it. And how you encourage our hearts through it. Lord, what a beautiful picture we have seen of you this morning. And I pray that you would imprint it on our minds and our hearts. Lord, that it would displace wrong images we've had of you as a harsh God, uh, a difficult, cruel taskmaster that works and works us and works us and works us more, 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 more. We replace that with an image of you uh, as our loving and compassionate Father who, who knows us. You know how we're made. You know our weaknesses. And you love us anyway. And you send Jesus so that we might be strong. I pray, Lord, that when we have believed that if we're not on the mission field, if we're not in full-time Christian ministry, then we are not really advancing your kingdom. I pray that you would dispel that lie from us. Or else, Lord, we will give up in defeat. No, you have placed each of us where you want us. And in every place, in all of our lives, Lord, there's opportunity to advance your gospel. Advance your kingdom. Just being a family who knows you and loves you, loves one another, loves their neighbors. Lord, what what you can accomplish through a family like that in the neighborhood that you've placed them. Through us here at Redeemer, a church that loves you and loves one another and loves our neighbors. Just in the simple things we do. Lord, what you can do through us to advance your kingdom. So Lord, keep us kingdom focused and Christ centered. And Lord, keep moving us along that scale till we are closer and closer and closer to having this goal. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.